Hello. Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call It Like I See It, we're going to discuss the recent reports coming out of Arizona that the partisan review of the 2020 election results actually show what all the evidence has shown so far, that Joe Biden won. And we're also going to consider whether this or anything matters anymore as far as what people are going to do and what people believe. And later on, we're going to consider some pretty counterintuitive research, which suggests that free time is making people less happy. Joining me today is a man that all he does is get dough, spit flows, and try to stay out of trouble. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, you ready to knock this joint out? Always knock it out the box. All right, all right. Mm -hmm. Now, we're recording this on September 27th, 2021. And yeah, this has been a pretty interesting uh, week or so. This past week was pretty interesting. This reporting was coming out that draft reports or excuse me, draft conclusions or the 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 of the review that was taking place, the so-called audit in Arizona of the 2020 election results uh, were showing that Biden, it did in fact win. And this was a highly partisan review and also a centerpiece of Donald Trump's big lie that he won the 2020 election. And this was actually supposed to provide the first bit of proof that, you know, of Trump's claim, you know, because everywhere else they had looked for proof had they'd come up empty. It just, you know, the evidence all was saying the same thing. So instead, this thing shows what everybody had said all along. Well, everybody who was looking at the evidence had said all along that that Biden actually won. And and this thing is actually, they're they're saying it's showing a larger margin of of victory for Biden than previously believed. So to get us going, Tunde, what is really going on here? Is is Stop the Steal a genuine, even if misplaced, belief? Or is this just a grift and people, politicians are going to fundraise on it or give contracts, you know, to, to... whatever companies, their favorite companies or their friends to come in and do audits and just taxpayer money, you know, here, here, have a million dollars, have 50 million, have a couple, couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, you know, is this prep work for the next coup attempt? I mean, what are there people who genuinely don't believe and they need to be convinced by all these audits? Like what's, what's going on, man? Well, that's funny. Cause I need to find friends like that. That can just <laughs> throw me a few hundred thousand or a few million bucks just to, just to audit something. Um, and it's funny because you <laughs> alluded to this. With the same answer. Yeah, and you alluded to this in in a, in a private conversation recently. If they were serious about audits, wouldn't they hire firms like Deloitte? Yeah, PwC. You know, like like firms that actually uh, do audits at major levels for that serious people hire if they yeah. need serious audits. Exactly. Not <laughs> not not code ninjas or whatever it was. Uh, you know. For their first audit. <laughs> yeah. So so the thing is, so let me answer the multi-pronged question here. So the answer is, I think there's probably a lot of different ingredients in this stew. Uh, let me put it that way. I do think that what we're seeing here is coming together of grifters and true believers. Let's just put it that way, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you and I might believe that enough audits, counts, whatever you want to call it, have been done. Um, the 63 or 67... Uh, federal and appellate court judges that tossed out all these claims, most of the judges actually being pointed by uh, former President Trump, um, and the absolute facts that we heard uh, the president's own attorneys when confronted by these judges to actually show proof 
of what they have um, in terms of any evidence, not even like smoking gun evidence, but just anything, yeah. even just anything some, on the periphery. Yeah, something to substan- um, substantiate. They all, they all fall down and can't bring in anything. And then we already talked on other shows about, you know, the, the news networks that then had to take people off air who kept pushing the lie because they didn't want to deal with being sued by the voting machine companies, so on and so forth. So to your point, there's clearly enough evidence for any rational, fair-minded person who may be upset about the re- election results, but understands how to critically think and look at, you know, general evidence of things to say, yes, this election now is one of the most scrutinized probably in the history of the United States. And it appears that um, Joseph R. Biden is, is the legitimate president. And let's finish off with the, 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 this one we're talking about here in Arizona. After all of this and six, seven months of this mess and a wasted money and time for the state of Arizona, um, they actually came back with a result that showed, and they acknowledged this, that Joe Biden had 99 more votes in his favor than the actual election showed. So they actually showed that he won by a slightly higher margin than the actual election results show. So um, so that's what I would say is I think there are, the grifter crowd is there, and I look forward to definitely um, uh, getting in the weeds on that. But I do think what they're doing is they're preying on a crowd that is legitimately misled um, and in some cases legitimately delusional. I mean, you know, I, I'm not here to make fun of people that don't like Biden. And that's what I want to be careful. I'm not lumping well, all Republicans. There's a, big, there's a big gap between not liking Biden. Correct. And, and that's what I want to be believing sure because, everything. Well, that remember, everything is so hyperpolarized in today's conversations that just by saying that if somebody doesn't agree with Biden, <laughs> just by saying he, Joe Biden's a human being. Yeah, you're like, you might have put them already. You, you know, they might assume on this conversation we're lumping them in with the, the guy at QAnon who had the bear outfit that got arrested in the Capitol on January 6th. So because I have a lot of good friends, close people in my life that voted for president, you know, former President Trump. They didn't like Biden at all. And, you know, they got caught up in some of this kind of stuff after the election of believing it was stolen. Um, I think most of them at this point have have backed off the ledge, but some I know deep down still believe in a lot of the conspiracy theories. And so, and that's my point. Like, you know, I think there's a spectrum of this um, and, you know, it's well, sad. Let me harmonize because I, I feel what you're saying. But I think actually this is a grift that like I, I think this actually reveals that it's a grift. But what's happened is that it's the grift married with modern propaganda, modern marketing techniques. And so you end up with like there are people who know at the top of the food chain, so to speak, that know that they're not going to be able to prove that the election was stolen. They've known that all along. Remember, Trump's plan, if he lost in 2016, was to say that he that it was stolen and, you know, do to do this then. He wanted to pull this string then, but he won. And so he was like, oh, well, you know, never mind. And so like this was this was just his play. Like it is if he lost, he was going to use the loss to propel him to something else. And so that's what I think, think we're doing. But what we're seeing is and you mentioned this to me offline, which I really saw this as like, OK, yeah, that's very insightful in this is that you're looking at basically, it's, it's like we talked about it a, a while back, this propaganda model that Rand Institute studied, the firehood of false, falsehood. Yeah. And so fire hose of falsehood. And so what is happening basically is you have at the top, it's like, okay, we're not going to concede defeat no matter what. Like Donald Trump's not the first person to ever lose an election, but 
he has made it his goal to make it, to, to turn this into something that he can perpetually fundraise on, perpetually stay relevant with, all by not admitting that he lost, and then having behind him an apparatus that can push these claims even without evidence, without being challenged over and over again. So I think that a lot of people have gotten caught up in it, but that's because they have been, it, it, you can almost say duped, so to speak. But some of them, they're willing, you know, like it's not like people aren't willing for this message, but they've been overwhelmed with it. Like I've seen reports that 36% of Americans don't think that Joe Biden has rightfully been elected. Yeah, I think they've been overwhelmed with messaging. This is what I think we're seeing We've seen this before, like, for example, in twenty in 2000, Al Gore believed it was important, even though he lost by 530-something votes, like not thousands, but 530-something votes. And, they, and the Supreme Court told Florida to stop counting. He said, it's important for me to concede, be gracious, because we need the country to get behind a president. We need, as a country, it's important for us to do this. I didn't get that at the time. Now I get why that's important and why we see with these transfers of power that when you lose or when you're, you're when you're declared the loser, it's important that you say, OK, fine. You may not agree, but you say, OK, well, we will we'll either we'll live to fight another day or whatever. You know, you concede and you move forward. And so basically that norm has been turned on its head in this case. And it apparently to me, it shows like this isn't unique here. This anybody could have pulled this card at any point if they didn't value the democracy, but they just didn't because they did value the democracy and, you know, like they, they kept it moving. So that's what I think is going on, really. I think the grift is full flow, but the, everybody who or most of the people who are in this of this mindset aren't a part of the grift. They're the ones who, who are donating all this money that's going to who knows what. Yeah. And, and I would say, because you said a few things there that I want to just kind of unpack for a bit. So one is um, you mentioned uh, the ecosystem, uh, you know, my one of my favorite words, um, <laughs> and it's the ecosystem of the media combined with the web apparatus of um, this type of um, mindset. Let me put it that way, because I don't even want to call it anything political like conservative or anything like that, because that's a disrespect to genuine conservatives. Um, yeah, this is, the, this is, this is, this, <laughs> this yeah, is this is like the people that claim that they're doing things in the name of Islam, like killing other people. Right. Um, that's not in the, that's not what a religion preaches, especially when they kill Muslims. So, uh, you know, like they bomb their own people. So, um, this is just as stupid, you know, and just as asinine of people that are claiming to be quote unquote, either conservative or they're patriotic, but yet they are actively blowing up and helping to make their democracy more dysfunctional. So what I would say is you're right about Al Gore. And as you're saying it, it brings to mind that not only did he lose that election by only 537 or 13 votes, I know it was less than 600 votes. Yeah, it was less than like, was like you 500 said, was the number. It was a, yeah, it changed 500 and change. Yeah. And so it was, they didn't even, we don't even know who won that election, honestly, because yes. remember, like you said, they stopped the counting of the votes. Yes. So we never actually had a federal federal government told Florida, Florida was trying to recount and the federal government said, stop or else George Bush, hold on, hold on. I I always got to say this or else George Bush may suffer irreparable harm. That was what the court said. So so, it's wild. Yeah. So the bottom line is, is that the people who think that everything is deep state and about, you know, the unconstitutionality of whenever somebody burps or farts that's in office, um, 
you know, it's amazing how short memories are. We're talking 20 years ago, 21 yeah. years ago, this happened. So, yeah. um, so, so yeah, that seems pretty unconstitutional and, and kind of, um, usurping the rights of voters when you don't even allow a major state that, uh, whose electoral colleges will decide a victory to actually finish counting their votes. Yeah. I mean, in the way looking, they see fit. Yeah. Yeah. And looking back on it, I mean, hanging chads and all that stuff we remember, maybe it was more important. We could have just done a full re, 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 uh, re-election, like in the state of Florida, just do a whole new vote if it was that bad, you know, like, uh, and then just wait a month and say, look, this is important for our country. But in any case, to not dwell on that, it's a good example, like you said. And, 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 and what I'm going to say is it's a good example that democracy not only is messy, but it's not easy to keep. And again, we've said this, alluded to this several ways that we always used to be taught that and taught even things from the founding fathers that, you know, the democracy is only as, as, as strong as you make it by, by, by the way you behave in it. And I think the things we're discussing today are as a direct reflection uh, on that. And we're watching this moment where certain actors are trying to bend a new reality into what most of us consider actual reality. And it goes back to when the former um, communications director in the first week of President Trump's administration, when they asked her about the big lie at the time, which was the crowd size of the inauguration, she looked at the camera and said, well, we're just going to deal in alternative facts. And so, again, this narrative has been coming and being pushed for a long time, which is if they don't if certain people in this country don't like the reality, they just change the narrative. And the reality for No, they don't change the narrative. They just subscribe to a made-up reality. Yeah, that's, well, that's, the, that's different than change. Well, there are ways to spin things and change narratives. The What we're seeing actually is saying, okay, I don't like a blue sky, so you know what? The sky has to be red. And what we... what. I identify, I mean, actually through communications I've had with you, just as far as you, you get email, fundraising emails and stuff. I don't really get stuff like that. You get a lot of those things and it's perpetual now. It's constant. It's all constant outrage about something. You got to give somebody money. And like, we're like not even near an election right now. Like we're more than a year out from in the next election and it's constant fundraising and it's con- like, and if you're going to be constantly fundraising, you got to constantly have reasons to to tell people that they should give you money. So it's this constant. We got to keep having things to say. Stop the steals, been you know the the head of a great fundraising campaign where it's just so much money and nobody knows where it's going because it's not like they're they're overturning any results. You know, like it's just like oh yeah, we did, you know we're just showing you what we already knew. And so what I see with that, like it used to be the the swamp, so to speak, was. Fat. What, 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 what is it? You know, you take tax money and then you give it to your friends and so forth. And like, so you're basically using the government to, or you give it to your friends, military contractors, whatever it is, you know, like military industrial complex. That's, that's, that's the normal corruption we're used to seeing is first you pay taxes and then the taxes, you, you know, aren't going to build a highway. They're going to, you know, like build something that we know we don't need to spend $500 on a toilet or something like that. Now there's that stuff still too. But now they're just hitting people up all the time for, for 20 bucks and 30 bucks all the time. And it's like, well, so the grift has gone direct to the people along with this marketing style, this fire hose of falsehood marketing style where you constantly hit people with things that aren't true, but you hit, you hit them in ways like the firehood of falsehood model basically has identified certain tenets that it doesn't matter if what you're saying is true, but if you present it in a certain way, and if you follow certain tenets, Russia is, is an innovator here, but we've we've picked it up here too as well. Our political parties really have picked it up. And 
if you present information a certain way, regardless if it is true, then you can move your audience to believe it. Yeah. And so it's you you combine that with the perpetual fundraising. And it, that's why I see a grift. I see a and if people are on the inside, there's nothing I can say that's going to change their mind. They're going to keep giving their money, even though they're not going to. It's not like that money is going towards anything other than putting some somebody's just putting it in their pocket or giving it to their friend. Yeah, no. And, and, and I think it's what's interesting is, is that like I learned that this this this. Uh, Cyber Ninjas, sorry, not Code Ninja, but Cyber Ninja is the name of the company that was the, one of the lead firms in this audit in the state of Arizona in the Maricopa County audit. Um, they uh, were uh, raised five point seven million in order to carry out, you know, their audit and all this activity. And they got paid of, by the government as well, the government yeah, of Arizona as well. Yeah, yeah and, and so, but the money they raised was off the small donors. So it goes yeah. to your point about, um, you know, this kind of this this constant hitting of people for small amounts. But if you hit enough of them, you get enough money to disrupt. And I, I also oh, believe- Oh, by the way, add into yeah. that. Remember, Trump was raising money for this as well, but he wasn't yeah. putting any money up for the actual recount. So he was was generating revenue from this as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and remember, you know, in December, I think of uh, 2020, uh, he had to give, his campaign had to refund 537,000, no, Something sixty-seven million to five hundred thirty thousand Americans, um, because of well, that grifting. was because they were that was the check box where they yeah yeah it was but it was reoccurring yeah it was reoccurring another donation yeah so 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 it's just you know it's amazing and I guess you know and that's where I feel like maybe it's a symbiotic relationship and and you know misery loves company meaning people I bet you that people that got grifted on and I got a refund from. Donating to his campaign, but being lied to about how much you know that they were going to keep taking, still are giving money to them today. So it's it's it reminds me because we've talked about this too. The way that our politics is going is going kind of the religiosity route, where people um, is is you know rational thought is leaving and just you know it's good or evil, my side versus your side, my God is better than your God kind of thing. And so if you really well, think about it, that's related. Remember, well, that's related because if you constantly tell people every week that or multiple times a day in some cases that whatever happening is the end of the world. And if we don't address this, you keep people on these high in this high tension game, then they do start look you they start to believe you that all of this stuff is life or death. And it never occurs to them that, oh, well, all of this stuff that they said was life or death actually it wasn't life or death. You just keep them on this constant edge. And that's what religion is for, basically, is to, to find peace in yeah. that life or death. I have my hero. You know, my my hero will save me in these trying times type of thing. Well, and that, that goes back to then, you know, what leads people to behave in a way like them storming their capital on January 6th, right? Because you're right. The religiosity of politics now has led a lot of Americans to believe that the other side is so bad that in the event that they even get power, like literally our lives are going to end. And so, yeah. and so, and it's, and it's sad because, you know, when we've talked about it in other discussions, having, having a healthy kind of conservative and liberal flanks in our political system is actually a good thing. It helps us like all. A, it, and, it's center left and center right is what yeah. we, we want to have in terms of trying, you, you want the center left to try to move you forward and the center right to kind of make sure that you don't go too far too fast, so to speak. And that is like Adam Kinzinger, you know, was talking about that actually. He, he had just learned about that in terms of, oh, you know, like it's, but yeah, you need both. 
You know, like you need both. You need the, the person to come up with the new ideas. And you need the person to vet the new ideas and figure out, you know, where the holes are and, and where to make it so that the new ideas can, the rollout basically can can work. And you don't yep. look too much before you, or look leap before you look. And there's there's another thing I want to point to too that that's kind of indirectly related to this because I think some of this grifting and and not just the grifting part because obviously there's people that that like I think Steve Bannon's a great example right he was caught on that uh, he was he was arrested while on a thirty million dollar yacht uh, of a Chinese owner which is an interesting wrinkle in itself um, but considering after, his rhetoric and yeah, you know correct. rhetoric and, and that's he's my been point. a part of so China. so it shows a disingenuousness of, of of people like him. But also, um, but he had embezzled, uh, basically he ran a Ponzi scheme, embezzled $25 million from small donors about, you know, because he said that but that money was going to build the wall and law enforcement <laughs> found that it wasn't. He just was yeah. taking it and spending it on yachts. And on crap. yachts. So, <laughs> yeah. And that's my point. Like, these people are constantly stealing from their own people. And that's what reminded me also of the religiosity because whether mega churches like the Tammy Faye Baker and Jim Baker sagas, you know, remember when yeah. we were kids? Yeah. Or the televangelists that people give money to. And I want to be very careful here because I'm clear, I, I'm not making a knock on religion. I'm saying that there are certain religious figures and leaders that have abused their position and the trust in their congregation. And well, I'm I think you can say it same, like this. Well, you don't have to tie me, it to, well, let me, let me, let me add this to you because what you're saying is we've seen this scenario where people have stolen money from people who would identify as their people, but their people don't actually hold it against them. You know, I think that's what you're talking about, where it's like, yeah, it's, well, it's kind of like they they they're like, oh, well, you know, their people are seemingly not as up in arms about being stolen from as we might think as, as I might be if somebody stole from. me. Yeah. And, and that's all I was going to say is this transitioning that now kind of what we've seen in religion the last 34, probably forever. But, you know, at least in our lifetime, what I remember um, now is really transitioned to politics. And it's interesting because, you know, I used to look at regions of the world, like, let's say certain Middle Eastern countries where they have these Shia and Sunni fights between the Muslims. And it kind of, I'm looking over there saying, man, you guys are all Muslims. What's the big deal here, you know? And, you know, you find out that the real difference between both of them is one group believes that um, Ali is the direct descendant of Muhammad and the other believes that Ali was like his nephew or something. And, you know, it, and you wonder, like, really, people have been fighting for a thousand plus years over this? Well, hold on, actually, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You got the same thing in Christianity too, though. No, but my point you is, got is the, that the Catholics well, and the Protestants exactly. and, and, and some my crazy point, stuff that's happened in that battle. Exactly, that and, and that's my point, though. This is that's religion, and yeah. one of the things that you know Americans tr traditionally prided ourselves on is the Constitution. That's supposed to take a lot of the emotion out of it and the tribalism, and allow us to focus on America as a country. And whether it was your favorite president or not. That person's job is to serve and then kind of move on when they either lose the the, the first election or they have done their eight years. So well, let, know, me, let me jump in with that, because I think that you make a good point. Like the Constitution is supposed to be the thing that we're all supposed to be the proudest of. And, you know, when people take the oath of office or the military takes their oath of enlistment, that's to the Constitution. That's not to a party, a political party or a, a, a office. They don't take it to the president or take an oath to the to the Congress or whatever. And so. That is supposed to be the thing that we hold highest. But I think that that has deteriorated, at least amongst a certain segment of Americans, where that is not the most important thing. And in fact, you know what's interesting, though, is that 
it always still is presented in those terms. And so that's still in there somewhere. That's why I look back at the propaganda model, the marketing style even, of how people are getting information, how people are influenced, because it's not like people just come out and say, screw the Constitution, it's not working for us anymore. Even though that's what their actions are actually showing, they don't say it. They still try to couch what they're doing in terms of constitutionality and all these other things. It's just, it's for an audience that won't think about, well, hold on, the Constitution... You know, like under the Constitution, this, these issues are solved already. This is over, yeah. you know? so Well, but that's, I mean, the January 6th is a great example, right? They went, people stormed the Capitol to try and stop a constitutional process of correct. counting the electoral votes to certify the election win of Joe Biden. Correct. So it, it goes back to kind of like, like religion. That's what I mean. It, it, when you allow this side of our humanity to creep into these things, um, irrationality wins the day and reason doesn't. And I think that you look at the readings of the founding fathers, that's why in the constitution, in the first amendment, they said that the Congress will not legislate a religion in this country. That's why separation of church and state was put in the first amendment of the constitution. Because like you just alluded to, they're coming from a Europe that was divided between Catholics and Protestants. Yeah. And you got the whole Martin Luther thing, then you got the Anglican church. So the bottom line is they understood this. They understood that these passions can run the risk of derailing a society over nothing, over stuff that is conspiracy and suspicion. Yeah. I mean, we even had, let's say, the Salem witch trials. That was before the founding of the Constitution, you know, the, before 1790 and all that stuff. So they had seen but, that here in the U.S. Yeah, Just, they knew. I mean, and George know. Washington railed on partisanship. You know, George yeah. Washington was like, yo, partisanship's going to send us to the same place. But, you know, his warnings weren't heeded. Or maybe it's the partisanship is almost inevitable. You just don't want to have the extreme partisanship. I'll tell you, as far as the answer to the question, I think this will continue as long as it bears fruit, which is probably the obvious answer. And so the bigger question I have is how much longer can this hand be played? How much longer can it be? If I lose and if I win an election, I'll just take power and, you know, we'll just keep it moving. If I lose the election, then we're going to say it wasn't it was a fraud and we're going to continually raise money off of it. We're going to continually rile up our supporters on it and we're going to bombard them with this propaganda style that immerses them in this concept that it was fake, even without any evidence. And again, the propaganda style, you can't really argue against the efficacy of that because that's been demonstrated. And it doesn't require, things can be flatly false. And I'll put the link into it again, into a sh the show notes. We discussed it before. We'll probably discuss it again as far as in more detail, as far as the actual components of this propaganda style. But it has been demonstrated to work over and over again, and it does not require truthful information. It can, in fact, one of the things that's identified is that it's easier if you don't do truthful information because being first is more important and because, you know, just the way the mind works, but being first is more important. And if you have to wait for facts, if you have to wait for truth, then whoever, somebody else can get out there with stuff that isn't true. You can just make up stuff quicker than you can verify stuff. So it's, it's I think that as long as this thing bears fruit and I, I actually, I mean, since I bring that up, I would say that ultimately there's going to have to be, there's going to be a reckoning. You know, like we've had them in this country. You mentioned this actually when we were preparing for this show. If you look at like the Civil War as a reckoning, like people decided after the election of Abraham Lincoln that they just weren't going to try to be, they didn't want to be a part of this country anymore. They, they were insurrectionists and, you know, they were like, we're out, you know? And so now they didn't try to rush the Capitol. They just said, look, we're out, we're leaving. 
Now, we also had something similar, which I said, like you brought up, which was a great point with Smedley Butler and, you know, with, when, during the FDR presidency, where he was approached by illiberal forces, people who, you know, were, were anti-liberal and, and wanted to establish more of an oligarch type system and saying, no, hey, we, we, we want to overthrow. We wanted to have a coup. Mr. Butler, we want you to, to be the leader when we do this. And he turned him in. You know, they thought he was, he was a critic of FDR. So they thought he would be down. He turned him in, but it's not like, these weren't just guys on the side of the street. Like these were very powerful. These were the, the, you know, the, 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 the barons of the day, you know, so to speak. And so they had decided at that point, Hey, we're out. We're not here for, and that was about all of the economic reform stuff of the new deal. And so it's not like, it can never happen here where you're just going to have Americans being like, you know what? We're out. You know, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And it's interesting because I could hear as you say that, you know, so many people have been convinced that things like um, wearing a mask and being asking people to wear a mask because of a pandemic <laughs> is literally like violating your constitutional rights. And I think this is the result of us not teaching civics for 40 years in school. Yeah. People don't understand what the constitution is. They don't just like the Bible. That's what I mean. It's becoming like yeah. religion where some of the most zealot people that are religious really got they don't they don't read the Bible or their Quran or their Torah or they only read it in a way to to self perpetualize whatever they already think of the religion. They don't actually or they only hear it. what other people say, isn't it? Yeah, that's and so and I think that's where we're at with the Constitution. You know, it's like it's like people just want to pull out of it what they want, but when something you know kind of doesn't go their way, then they just you know well this didn't go my way and and and. And I'm just going to blow it up. And so, yeah, I think we have that risk that we do become like an Eastern European bloc country. That it's just, you know, grifters rule the day, a kleptocracy. And, yeah. and you know, we're, we're a, we're a um, illiberal constitutional republic. And you know what I mean? Because yeah. realistically, yeah. we're not a democracy. We're a well, constitutional republic. Well, Tucker so, Carlson was just saying how in Hungary, Hungary has basically that type of system. And he was saying, yeah. hey, that's that's a model for here. And it's like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. And, and so, he was and, called and, out by people, even Repub some Republicans were saying, hey, what are you talking? Romney was saying, what are you talking about? Well, like that and that's the interesting thing, because it's this, you know, fascism is an interesting um, system uh, because it's only been tried a few times in the 20th century, and those were things like Mussolini's Italy, uh, the Nazi Germany of the 30s. Um, and it seems like, and I'm not talking about now atrocities like the Holocaust. What I'm saying is it seems like that style of government in terms of where there's a blending between the uber wealthy and corporate owners and their friends in government. Yeah, and exactly. what happened is like IG Farben in, in in Hitler's Germany that was supplying the the Zyklon B gas to the to 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 you know the oil and gas for the the railroads and the and the and the, and the army tanks, but those were kind of like the grifters. Those were the cronies who helped back Hitler getting into power and Goebbels and all those guys. Then you had the guys like Goebbels with the propaganda, right? Hitting on marginalized groups like Jews who weren't big in the population in Germany. And also on groups like gypsies, gays, Catholics, others that were small enough in number that they couldn't really congregate to defend themselves. And then other people didn't want to become associated with them to be on the bad side of kind of the society. And if you look at today's world, a lot of the fundraising, what's interesting, one of the articles I read to prepare for today was actually an article that was describing what the people who have been arrested for the January 6th riot and insurrection what they actually have been saying in court, like like their actual testimony. Mm. 
100% of them, all of them, named Antifa as one of the reasons why they had to stop this, all this Biden win and all this stuff. And it's interesting because Antifa is a great boogeyman and it's a perfect one because Antifa actually is just a loose federation of left-leaning people that call themselves anti-fascist, right? But there's no central body or, or, and it's kind of like BLM in a way. We know there is a central BLM organization, but BLM is really, again, a, a confederacy or a conglomerate of people who believe in just things like ending racism and the justice system and stuff like that. And, but and there's among, no, and among other things too. And so that's why it's, but there's no formal platform. Correct. So it's so kind of like the war on, wants. but it's like the war on terror, right? It's, it's very vague. So it allows people who get ginned up into this that now that the grifters, this is where the genius of it is, unfortunately, for our democracy. The grifters can just put out, like the emails I share with you, Antifa, the left, BLM, all this stuff. And it just creates an emotional uh, response from a trigger inside of an individual. Instead of saying something like, China's going to invade us tomorrow, well, people would say, well, hold on, that's a whole country. They're over there. Oh, we can look at them. Hey, you know what? The military hasn't said that they're, we're at risk. You know, I don't really believe that. But when you've got this vague thing like an Antifa, and there's no one really there defending Antifa because they don't really exist in that way to have like a platform to defend themselves, then, and, it, and it's also like BLM, like there's no defense for BLM because it's either like you get it or you don't type of thing, or you either look at that as such a threat to you or you Well, hold don't. on. No, it's even, Antifa is even more of a shapeless yeah. uh, figure because it's not like people get on television and say, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm chapter head of B B Black Lives Matter and start talking about Black Lives Matter. You don't see that way. You don't see people on TV talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I run this section of Antifa and I, this is what we think. And, and we think that you guys are like, nobody, th there's never that, you know, like yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a nameless, faceless, shapeless thing that you can make people afraid of. And some of the worst atrocities in the world, world history, have always been about protecting people from nameless, faceless, shapeless boogeymen. Correct. They really don't really, they're kind of like, remember that group Acorn that in the 08 election that was seen Acorn as- Acorn existed, man. I know, like but that's what I mean. To an a try to go to an Antifa office. Yeah. Try to get somebody from Antifa on the pot. I'm telling you, it does, it's, it's an enemy that you can- basically create in the imagination of your followers. And so it but that's why it's great foil. for a yeah. grifter and a con man, because it, exactly it never disappears. So I mean, it's like the war on terror. And so the last thing I just wanted to say here, and you know, you know, I've railed against this in private conversations, which is, um, you know, like look up the words of representative Paul Gosar, who's a U.S. congressman from Arizona, who's been railing against this audit, the, the results, and that he has now proof that 750,000 ballots were discarded right after the election so that this audit now for Maricopa County is baseless and all this stuff. It was worthless. He, now he's and, saying the audit was worthless. Yeah. It's so, like, yo. What, but what? My, my, my point is, is like, and this is a serious like concern of mine and a serious question of mine. He took an oath, like you said, as a U.S. congressman elected by, yes, people in his district in Arizona, but they didn't send him to his state capital to deal just with Arizona. They sent him to the U.S. Capitol to be a United States congressman. He took an oath to the United States Constitution to defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. At what point do we not look at him as a domestic enemy? He is actively lying. He is actively ginning people up to believe that their country and their democracy doesn't work in the way that it does work. 
at what point is he a cancer within our system? And do we look at impeaching a guy like this or putting him in jail for treason? I mean, that's what I mean. Like, at what point are elect? Like, I get it. Like, we're talking about that there could be, you know, the symbiotic dance, and some are grifters, some are marks, and I, I get it. No, I, a per, I think a person, that's a but, great question. But, Where because, is the line between? Because, well, let me just finish okay. this thought, though, because a person in the public sphere, like a regular citizen, like me or you, that is watching television every night on the news and seeing people who are calling themselves newscasters with conviction in their eyes saying that the election was stolen, and then interviewing elected officials yeah. who are serving in office right now, like Paul Gosar, like Ron Johnson, like a lot of them. I'm not even going to start naming them, right? We all, we all have seen them talk, and they all play this footsie game. And at, like, at what point are they not doing what Aldrich James did or what um, Lola Montez did or some of, you know, these are people for the audience, if you don't know these names, these were people caught spying as, as for Russia or other countries or the Cubans who are working in the CIA and FBI and spying on our country and selling our secrets to China or some other country or Russia, they get put in prison because they are actively subverting our country and they are helping our enemy. And that's from my point, like at what point, like you're saying, we've had now this, 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 this third audit in Arizona that shows that Biden won more than, more than one by 99 votes more than they actually count in the election. And all by groups that are fully supporting former President Trump. There's no Democrat or liberal in those groups. And somehow, now Paul Gosar is allowed to behave like this again. And yeah. I just don't well, understand. Think, or or well, elected no, I, officials I, I, that say that it was Antifa and BLM storming the Capitol January 6th. Like, at what point is this not, like, they're enemies of their own country? Well, that's the question that nobody knows the answer to, because in terms of, yeah, like, they are actively undermining the functioning and the operation, the execution of the U.S. Constitution. Um, you know, it's almost like if they were, if, if you could show that Putin told him, Vladimir Putin told him to do this, then people would be comfortable saying, okay, yeah, yeah we can't let them do this. But if they do it on their own volition, then what? You know, and so and that, I think we're beyond that. We had a three year well, investigation to show people that Vladimir Putin was trying to do some stuff and half the country <laughs> just well, looks but, the other way. I'm just saying, like, in terms of people want there to be <laughs> a source of the bad that comes from the outside, not Remember. just someone deciding to come from not just deciding to do it on the inside. Like, I think people are very uncomfortable with that. And I think we all should, because other people's sensibilities like, OK, well, the lie, the fudge the exaggeration, like all of these things are slippery slopes, slippery slopes in a society where you're supposed to have freedom of speech. You know, government's just, not supposed just, to be locked. Just you remember, up you say. it's all Hunter Biden's fault. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think it's a good question, though. It, but the question is further than what you're saying. It's not just the people who are actively subverting it. It's the people who do not push back on the people actively subverting it. You know, like when there's yeah. when people just let that happen and just say, oh, well, hopefully these guys will just go away at some point. But they let them they, they keep them on the platforms like Liz Cheney didn't get on board with a lot of the things that we would consider to be dishonest. And so, therefore, she was punished by her partner. It's amazing. But people who actually do dishonest things. Gosar is not about to be punished by his party or by the 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 the, 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 con the Congress in general. We'll see how, hopefully it doesn't have to go too far before this is reined in.
No, <laughs> that's the understatement of the day. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think it's already gone too far. But that's yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I don't know. I think we can move on from there. Uh, I, I, I was to- so warm and fuzzy in that conversation. I wanted to stay, but you're right. <laughs> well, no, I, I wanted to also get your thoughts on this, this second topic, uh, which just seemed to be the most counterintuitive thing that, that you can imagine. You know, most people, and and this does the the, the article we we we're, we'll put in the show notes. It does discuss how you know free time is oftentimes considered in contrast with work. You know, work. So you have work, and then you have leisure. You know, work and free time and so forth. But what it gets into is how oftentimes because we work so much or other factors, the desire to make free time so fulfilling and so you know dope. Basically, we end up almost make it like the, the free time becomes the standard we can't reach. The, the happiness we want to obtain, we can't get there. So we're disappointed with the leisure time. And so it's, it's making people unhappy is the premise here. What was your reaction to this, man? Is, is, is this as crazy as it sounds? Or are they on to something? No, they're on to something. It's, it's amazing um, because what it, this does really is point out, you know, a lot of our humanity um, mm. that how we uh, have things like anxiety and we we have cultures over time because they talked about you know what leisure uh, was during the Roman days all the way up till now the industrial age, and I think that part of the way we look at leisure, and I can even speak to some of my own feelings from different parts of my life, uh, I think is reflected a lot from just the industrial age and how we've developed as humanity in terms of work. So you know we're all conditioned to have a certain amount of time off per year, right? In America, it's two weeks. In Europe, it's six weeks or eight weeks. But we all believe like, okay, well, I just had my two weeks vacation. Well, who, you know, who really said that? I mean, what if I want to take six months off? You know, right? <laughs> but in, in because of the way that the industrial age conditioned society where you had, you know, and you, this is something that goes back to your world, right? Concentrated capital at the top. You know, you're talking about like the Carnegie's, the Vanderbilt's. The, um, the the Rockefellers, the people that had the big steel plants. and People that could kinda, afford to do a, a plant. You know? Correct. Yeah. And what happens is then you had all the workers. And what happened is the workers needed to work. But in the early part of the 20th century, called the 20s and the 30s, there became the kind of unions and the agreements between labor and capital. So that's when you started having things like a 40-hour work week and, and you know, overtime and then things like vacation. What was the agreement between labor and capital on something like vacation? So- the uh, because, for example, during slavery, slaves worked six days a week, only had Sunday off and only had holidays like Christmas off. That was it. So there was no two week break and there was no 40 hour work week in that environment. No, so, no paycheck either. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. But I'm just making a point. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's yeah. Still like leisure was something that human beings still. No, it's, and, it's, and, I, was, even, I was just throwing that in. After, but go ahead. Yeah. And, and so and so what I'm saying is today we still operate from the hundred years ago kind of agreements between capital and labor as the industrial age reached one of its early heights, right? The the mass productions of the early 20s and 30s, like the Model T Ford and all that kind of stuff. So fast forward to today. Well, let me say this actually, uh because what it is more so is that that was a a kind of setup that worked well enough. Like before those kind of agreements and kind of ways of operating were really finalized, there was a lot of violence there was a lot, yeah. a lot, a lot of issues with kept between capital and labor in terms of just the way things were happening. Like, yeah, so that, that, that was that almost kind of got like a truce. That's what that, I was going to say. It's like a compromise. Yeah. Like, like it, you know, it, we'll okay, coexist so this way. And, yeah. and really, that's been the, the tug and uh, pull and tug ebb and flow between labor and capital since then. 
And so I think the issue we have and why this article is very interesting is we, we need time off and we need time to recharge. But in today's society, we're almost made to feel guilty by taking time off. And it's a very interesting dynamic. And then I think, I would say in the last 18 months, the pandemic even throws more of a monkey wrench into yeah. it because of the stay-at-home working. Are you really taking time off? Or are you not? And what is what is the definition of How do you even stress? delineate? Yeah, how do you yeah, delineate like, between the time off and the time working? Yeah, because I could have been working out of my house on Zoom for the last year and a half, but I didn't take a vacation either. So I'm kind of stressed out, but I don't know if I should be because I've been at home. You know, like there's all these new questions that kind of come up with how this works. And the last thing I'll say before I get off my high horse is compare this to other conversations we've had in the past about how humans uh, split their time up, let's say, in the days of the hunter-gatherers, where in, one, in a one-week period, 80 to 90% of one's time might have been leisure. Yeah. Because the time it took to hunt and to forage for food was really all you did. And that didn't take too much time if, depending on which parts of the world you lived in and, and areas that were lush with forests and all that, you might have hunted in the morning and you were back home in an hour and the rest of your day was yours. I mean, and even with you agriculture, you'd have peak times and then you'd have times yeah. when it wasn't much going on, you know? And so like, yeah, I think that, I think the frame you gave it was very uh, interesting and very, like it was a good frame in terms of, it, it goes back to when we talked about just work itself, the, the concept of work as we perceive it now is a relatively recent thing in humanity. I thought like the thing that really stood out to me in this was the concept of trying to make leisure perfect, like making the, because I think this is something I've dealt with in my past, like going out and stuff, like particularly I, I, it hit me when I had kids. And we got like, you know, me and my, my wife and I would get maybe, you know, we have a babysitter come, you know, once once every couple of weeks or something like that. And I felt like, man, we get the babysitter. We got to get out. We got to have a great time because we can't just do this whenever we want. Like we had done prior to kids. You know, we can just go out whenever we want. And it's like, oh, you know, sometimes it's cool. Sometimes it's whatever, you know, whatever. Like it. But it's like, no, we got to go out. We got to have a good time. We, it has to be the best time ever. And my wife would yeah. get on me about it. Like, ah, oh, you know, why, why are you putting so much pressure on this? And I read this like, ooh, uh, that, that's one for me. But the other one, the other piece that I've seen, you know, just in terms of this type of thing is the leisure time after work where, and then again, this brings in with kids as well. Like you take care of the kids and so forth. And then finally you're done with work, you're done with the kids and, you know, it's nine o'clock or something like that. And it's like, really? If you want to be well rested, you know, and you want to, to really get a good jump on the next day and all that stuff, you should probably start winding down. But it's like, man, my day has been on everything else prior to this. I want to do some stuff for me. You know, I want to just have my own time. And then you end up staying up late. And then it's like, well, yeah. but it's, you didn't even need to stay up late. But it's just kind of a mental thing where you just I got to squeeze in some leisure time here because. I had all my other time has been dedicated. So both of those aspects were touched on here, which I found both of those to be like just something I could relate to. And it's like, well, what are you supposed to do about this thing? You know, like, how do you come off of the ledge? Because, I mean, we're human beings, you know, and we're conditioned in this society. Yeah. And I think one of the things that this this article is great because of what it was a good reminder. And, and um, you know, I've been trying to do this more as I've gotten older and just, you know, life experiences is um, just be more present. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the things that causes all of us a lot of anxiety is not knowing how to really just be present and be still. And I mean, I'm literally talking like oh, today I was walking my dog and I had my headphones on and listening to some audiobook, and I actually realized, you know what? I'm not being present. Let me turn this off. Yeah. And it was cool because I walk and I look up and there was these two blue jays going at it, you know, just having a little fight about something in the tree above me. And I sat there and watched them 
And yeah. they were beautiful, just blue jays, just good looking birds. And it was fun. I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah. And it was just, and what I'm saying is, because if you're taking time off like that, you can just be content. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, obviously I like going on vacation. I like doing certain things, but I think you're right. Like this, this, like the need to kind of pack in your leisure time with a whole bunch of stuff then creates more stress or potentially. And then the other thing I thought of too, and just some of this life experience about being present is again, it goes back to our conditioning. And that's what I mean by this kind of this, this, um, uh, the industrial age, because if you look at also what happened during that era of a hundred years ago in the industrial age and all that, you know, some, something that's a a region that's not far from us became, um, popular for the uber wealthy which was palm beach the island of palm beach mm-hmm. and it's because in the starting in let's say the the 20s um the uber wealthy the vanderbilts the rockefellers those type of families would come down in the winter from the northeast from their homes in connecticut new york so on and so forth and they would spend the winter in palm beach and so what happened is to the higher high high net worth crowd the ability to actually take leisure time became a status symbol Mm-hmm. Because that's like, and that's what I mean by humanity is interesting because it's kind of like today how people now use, let's say, selfies on social media as a status symbol. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm off, but I'm climbing a mountain mm-hmm. or I'm, or I'm, you know, at the top of the tallest building in Hong Kong. Still I'm performing. Show- yeah. Still Correct. Performing. Like I'm performing. Yeah. Exactly. I'm showing all you guys how good my life is. Yeah. And that inevitably will create some stress in someone because they're not really being present. And I think we've all seen that, like. How many times have we been somewhere where we see a mom who's being a, you know, a good mom, but she's taking pictures of her kids so much at the birthday party, you realize she's actually not just enjoying the moment of watching her kid enjoy the birthday party. Yeah. She's more worried about trying to capture the moment for a future thing yeah. and instead of yeah, being yeah. present. And so I think that's why, I mean, it's a very interesting um, conversation because it involves so much of our humanity and it's all just like regular, I guess, humanity, right? We don't realize that we make ourselves miserable a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, because it's yeah. the constructs that we the constructs that we operate in is kind of what does it. It's like we don't yeah. intend to make ourselves unhappy, but we engage in we all these constructs are all we know. And I think the way you're putting it is a good way because the kind of the takeaway from the the, the article was the the need to change your attitude towards these things and you know to approach them in a different way. And, and that's how you can try to get more enjoyment out of them. And so I think that's a good way to look. I mean, just being aware of the, of the concept, though, can lead you, can allow you to at least walk down that path, you know, and yeah. with not being aware of it. You just are in that construct and you don't even know that there's a different way or a better way. So from my standpoint, to me, that's why it's something interesting to look at, interesting to talk about, because it's like, OK, well, how for myself, how am I? messing my leisure time up to where it's not even as enjoyable as it could or should be, so to speak. Yeah. And, and the one thing I want to say, and then I, 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 you know, I can wrap it from here is, um, um, you know, the way that it's two things that I'm recognizing one's from the industrial age. The other is really our culture of, I would say the kind of Abrahamic religions. Um, I think all three of the major religions, uh, you know, um, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, um, talk about the afterlife, right. And this idea of heaven, and from an industrial age standpoint, where I'm getting at is the idea of, let's say, retirement, right? Mm. Like, I'm, think about it. I mean, a thousand years ago, some guy with a farm, whether it be in England or some guy in the, in the Maasai, you know, the tribe in the Serengeti in Kenya, they weren't worried about retiring, right? They were more present. They lived day to day and they just worked till they got old and then the kids took care of them or something like that, or they died, right? And I think in today's world, the part of what I think gives us all anxiety 
uh, most of us in just our modern world, um, like like first world countries, is we're conditioned to always think about the future and put off the now. So if it's religion, it's thinking about, well, I might have to suffer in this life. I got to suffer because when I die, I, I'm, it's, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to reap heaven. And then if it's your job, it's I got to be miserable. I got to crank out like you're a lawyer, right? I, when you were young and they made you work your ass off in the law firms, why? Oh, because in the future, you're going to make so much money. Just put up with it now. Mm-hmm. And the same with me when I was, you know, up until midnight every day in the week when I was in my 20s in the office working, you know? And, you know, I guess as I gotten older, I realized, and maybe people die around you and things, you realize, man, tomorrow's not promised. Yeah. And I realized as I've been trying to live in the present more that that's also part of the stress. Like I was thinking like, why am I stressed out about my 401k and how much money I'm going to accumulate when I'm 65 and all this stuff? I'm sitting here at 43 worrying about 20 years from now. Like what the hell is that about? Like people weren't doing that back in the day, like meaning hunter gatherer societies and all that. And I was funny. I was looking at my dog, my chocolate lab wagging his tail, looking at me. And I thought, man, I got to be like him. <laughs> He's always present. Think about it. He's not worried about what I'm going to feed him in three days. He's not worried about the time I yelled at him two months ago for, for digging, eating in the trash. Yeah. He's constantly present and his tail's always wagging. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we have to, you know, I live in this society. I got a family. I pay a mortgage. So I know that I have to think about the future and certain things. And, you know, I, 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 but I, thinking about something is, is different than obsessing about it yeah, or and, just and, trying and to allowing be, it trying to, to have anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Like give you anxiety. And so, and that's what I mean. Like I realized I'm going to try and do my thing. And make sure I have enough money in the future for retirement, but I'm no longer going to stress out about it because I got to enjoy my life along this journey. And I think that's what we've been conditioned to learn too about people that are on their deathbed and they have all these epiphanies. Yeah, because they've just been going so hard their whole life, they realize they never even um, got a chance to live. No, and so, I mean it's it's interesting. Yeah, you know so, the um the from but from both the Abrahamic religion and the the work aspect of it. One of the things that stood out to me uh, when you just said that was that both of those are kind of arguably like cons from people who have more than you <laughs> telling you to chill out. <laughs> you'll get yours after you die or you'll get it is. That, that, some years. No, but that's but, why I thought of the Palm Beach example when I was reading the article and thinking, I was like, well, that's the same thing, right? The wealth thing about the wealth crowd coming down to Palm Beach. But then their workers are back in a factory in Pennsylvania, exactly. you know, in a steel factory. And they're, telling their them, butt off. and they're telling them, no, just keep working, man. You know, you'll have a good one day. And they're down yeah. there hanging out, you know, on the boat. <laughs> so I think that so I think that that's it, 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 the state of mind aspect of it. There needs to be a way, obviously, to to not starve tomorrow. You know, like you can't be present if, if you go back to yeah. agricultural times where, you know, you can't eat all your food in the summer and then have nothing to eat in the winter if you're in a, a, a temperate climate or something like that. But there also needs to be a way. And you, I think part of this, it, it's your focus, you know, like you, you, what you focus on is your reality, so to speak. And your focus has to also be on today and making sure that you don't put all your happiness off till Friday, you know, when, you know, it's the weekend or until your next vacation or, you know, until the end of the night when it's finally, the kids are finally in bed and, and whatever. And so, I think, like you said, it's being present, you know, like, but the attitude change part, whatever works for individuals, whatever works for you may not be what works for somebody else. But I think it'd be helpful for all of us to try to get there a little bit. I mean, and just being aware of it, I think is helpful. So, yeah, but I mean, we can wrap it up from there, man. Um, we appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call It Like I See It. And until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Wamana. All right, subscribe, rate, review, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>